By the way, I disagree. I think that a memorandum of understanding <laughs> is not a contract uh, to the extent that we want. We're going to have — we're doing a memorandum of understanding. That will be put into a final contract, I assume. But to me, the final contract is really the thing, Bob, and I think you mean that, too, is really the thing that means something. A memorandum of understanding is exactly that. It's a memorandum of what our understanding is. But to me, the contract is — the real question is, Bob, so we do a memorandum of understanding, which, frankly, you could do or not do. I don't care if you do it or not. To me, it doesn't mean very much. But if you do a memorandum, how long will it take to put that into a final binding contract? What? From now on, we're not using the word memorandum of understanding anymore. We're going to use the, the, the term trade agreement, all right? Okay. Right. No more. We'll never use the term right. again. We'll have the same document. It's going to be called a trade agreement. We're never going to use MOU again. Welcome to The Current Account. This week, we have Michael Hearson, who has the dubious honor of being our first return guest. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. I hope to get a better gift this time. <laughs> That's right. We promised you a mug, and uh, we're still working on that. So when you were first on a couple months ago, we talked a lot about U.S.-China trade talks. The day that we're uh, taping this today, Friday afternoon, March 1st, was the long-awaited deadline for when tariffs would go from 10 to 25 percent. That didn't happen. Uh, we got sort of an open-ended extension with a promise of talks, possibly at the end of this month. Um, fill us in on what has happened over the last couple of weeks and how you see U.S.-China going forward on trade. It's It's been a fascinating few weeks, and it's been very fluid. So, as you said, today was a key deadline, March 1st. This is when this was the end of the 90-day negotiations that um, Presidents Trump and Xi agreed to when they met in uh, Argentina in early December. We had expected this to be extended because there's just a, a quite wide gap between the two sides on the core issues of this trade dispute, but also a real reluctance to escalate this further. Uh, and I think the one of the real shifts in recent months has been Trump's desire to get a deal because he's worried about what would happen in terms of his political fortunes and U.S. economy, U.S. equity markets from a further escalation from here. So it's not a surprise to us that we've seen this extension. What is a bit surprising, and this is really just something that's been in the last two weeks, has been that the two sides seem to be moving closer to um, to a broader deal. In other words, we had expected uh, the deal uh, to really be quite limited. It would focus on the politically easy areas with China committing to purchase more U.S. goods, more U.S. farm goods, U.S. energy, uh, basically posting some big numbers that Trump could tweet about. But we really expected this to get bogged down on the structural issues at the heart of the trade dispute, in particular issues related to China's innovation policies. Now, I don't want to suggest that these have been resolved, but it seems that over the last week or so, the two sides have really made significant progress. And even U.S. officials um, have been, I think, pleasantly surprised at how far things have come. So what happens next is, um, if all goes according to plan, Trump and Xi will sit down to actually sign this deal or sort of formally agree to it. That could happen even later this month at uh, Mar-a-Lago if they can get the logistics right for that. 
And I think for the short term, the momentum is is pretty strong. Now, the risks are shifting from the risk of talks breaking down, which seems a little bit, you know, uh, not as not as high right now, to risks of implementation. And I think there's going to be some real challenges here because we are talking about the U.S. with some very big asks for China um, that cut against Xi Jinping's um, political priorities, his style of governance, that in some ways challenge uh, China's economic system. And that's going to be a tough challenge. And we're talking about very different timelines. The Trump administration wants progress now. And uh, the Chinese side um, would like to make these changes gradually. So this is, this is going to, I think, mean that uh, we could very well be in for some serious friction, even in the months after this deal is agreed. So two linked questions. The first is, how much of this apparent progress over the past week or so is coming from the U.S. lowering the bar on demands or being creative about what it accepts, you know, packaging together old commitments and things like that? And how much is it about the Chinese negotiating team uh, giving more? Uh, and the linked question is, if it's the former, the U.S. lowering the bar, how much of this is about shifting internal dynamics within the Trump administration where people like USTR Robert Lighthizer, who have been not just seen but very publicly said that he is driving the harder line here, coming up against people like Kudlow and Mnuchin who have taken a more, quote-unquote, constructive line. So is it China or the U.S.? shifting here and if it's the US is this di- are these internal administration dynamics that could shift back if uh, you know stock markets rally again for example so it's a great question and i think that the flexibility in the last several weeks has actually come more from the chinese side there's been um, there's been some increased pragmatism on both sides. And if you take, for example, the way they're treating the Made in China 2025 initiative, this is the signature industrial policy uh, from China that has really been the target of the US, the main source of concern. I think the two sides have realized that it's not productive to be talking about Made in China 2025 as the sole focus in part because it's politically difficult for Xi Jinping to, uh, to to disown this initiative. So instead, they're shifting to talk about the underlying policies. And that seems to be one reason why they're making more progress now. Now, the internal dynamics within the Trump administration are really important here. Um, Robert Lighthizer is the more hawkish of the key trade officials in the cabinet. Um, And I think he has been fair to say skeptical of taking the pressure off Beijing and agreeing to this extension. But my sense is even Lighthizer over the last few weeks sees enough here to make this deal justifiable in the extension of talks. The key point, and I think one reason why your question is so pertinent is this issue is not going away. There are going to be continued fights within the Trump administration both in the run-up to an eventual meeting between Trump and Xi and in implementation as to how hard to push. And China is going to be uh, trying to play those dynamics to its favor. It will look to 
boost purchases of U.S. goods and grant market access to U.S. financial services firms as a way of currying favor with Kudlow and Mnuchin, who are, I think, you know, have a far lower bar on some of these issues. Um, but this dynamic is going to continue to play out, and it's going to be something that's important to watch. I do think Lighthizer has played this quite masterfully. He has um, kept a strong relationship with Trump, but has really, I think, to some extent been vindicated, at least so far, in terms of the benefits of, of keeping up the pressure in Trump's eyes. So you talked about shifting from sort of negotiation risk to implementation risk. Seems to me that there's two phases of that. The first is the negotiating team from China goes back or, you know, it's meetings internally where they're trying to get kind of official uh, approval for this ahead of the summit. And they're basically told, you did what? You know, you sort of gave what away? Um, that seems to me to be kind of the, the near-term risk. So when they come back at Mar-a-Lago, there's, you know, new commitments or commitments have been softened, things seem different. Uh, second is more driven from the U.S. side where uh, Lighthizer in particular really trying to force a strong monitoring mechanism where I read some report that said we may even have quarterly or even higher frequency reviews as to Chinese progress. Um, that seems to me fraught with risk. Could you break those two down and kind of suggest where you see the vulnerabilities around both of those? So where we are right now, process-wise, to get to that first risk is Liu He, the Chinese vice premier, the lead negotiator, is, is back in Beijing now, and he is selling this deal to President Xi and to the rest of China's system. So it does raise this question, did Liu, when he was in Washington uh, last week and over the weekend, did he agree to commitments that Xi Jinping um, will not agree to? I think it's a risk. It's interesting, uh, Liu He, who is uh, someone that I had some exposure to in my past life working from US Treasury, uh, working for US Treasury in Beijing, you know, I think is somebody who wants to use trade agreements like this as a hook to push through reform measures in China that he's in favor of. Xi Jinping is, I, I think, safe to say not of that view. He's not. Um, doesn't have the same desire to, to push forward some of these same reforms. He's far more uh, pragmatic about just re relieving some of the pressure from this, this, uh, this trade dispute. So there is a risk that as, as Liu goes back, sells to Xi, sells this to many other stakeholders in China who are not going to be supportive of these policies, that China could come back and say, wait, we have some modifications. I think this risk is, I don't want to dismiss it, but it's, uh, it's, it's probably not very high. And so I do think we're in decent shape, most likely, for, uh, for a deal going forward. The bigger risk is the second one. It's implementation. It's what happens as the two sides start sitting down and going over progress. And there, I think it's almost certain that there's going to be some serious friction ahead. And then it comes to the question of, okay, uh, Lighthizer USTR uh, finds China in breach of some of its commitments. He will tell Trump to uh, quite possibly increase tariffs again, or certainly not lower tariffs. And then it'll be a complicated political decision for Trump. And we may be closer at that point, depending on when the frustration mounts, to the 2020 election. China will be watching President Trump's political fortunes. And if they see him as vulnerable and less likely to escalate tariffs, 
I think Beijing will uh, lighten up on its efforts and take a slower approach on these reforms. And the tariffs that are already in place, they go away with this deal or they stay in place as, as leverage? It's a little hard to say right now, but I think the fact that the two sides have come together on some of these uh, structural issues makes it more likely that when Trump and Xi sit down later this month, that Trump will announce some reduction, maybe a symbolic reduction in tariffs. But I think Lighthizer will be telling Trump, don't remove tariffs until we see how serious China is, because we need this as a form of leverage over China to hold them to their commitments. And that's probably an argument that Trump will accept. And so I think that it's probably going to be quite a slow pace of uh, removal of tariffs from the U.S. Um, over the next year. And if this friction happens sooner rather than later in terms of China's commitments, we could see most existing U.S. tariffs stay in place. So shifting to, to the other big China, China-U.S. financial market news of the week, MSCI added China to benchmark uh, emerging market equity indices. But I'm a big believer in China. I think the, uh, the Chinese uh, market is going to open up a lot faster than people believe. It's the second largest equity market in the world. It's trading at relatively cheap valuations. And, you know, this is a good entry point. Now, I'm not saying that things are not going to get worse. They could. But if you look at a long-term perspective, you ought to believe that China's but in the short But in the short term, how much, how much farther do you think it has to What's the downside look like in the short term? What's the upside look like in the short term? I think in the short term, you know, obviously it has to do a lot with geopolitics. You know, a little bit of the Fed, you know, tightening and emerging markets having uh, compressing a little bit. But, uh, but it's the geopolitics. Uh, hopefully, in the next few months, we can see a trade a deal between uh, Trump and Xi Jinping. And uh, if we see that, the, the market would rally. Ron says no. How important is this? And sort of let's consider it in, in kind of broader context of, of a Chinese economy that's been slowing, that has been focused on, as, as you term it, de-risking, which is sort of deleveraging, but, but more around taking risk out of the financial sector. And structurally, in a period of China's economic history where it's shifting from the world's biggest current account surplus country um, on its way to a deficit. Do you link things like MSCI, including China, some of the various uh, capital markets reforms, uh, with this broader structural shift? Is this how Chinese officials see it? You know, walk us through the strategy there and, and what we can expect in terms of capital account reform. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating time right now because this is uh, one decision. It's an incremental move. Um, so in some ways, it's, it's, it's quite specific. But you're right, it's linked to some really interesting um, broader macro trends that we shouldn't lose sight of. One, as you mentioned, is the fact that China is moving from an economy with sustained current account surpluses, where it was having trouble managing inflows of, of foreign exchange, um, to one in which it's that surplus is, is quite a bit smaller and may even move to deficit on a sustained basis. So it means China needs foreign capital. Um, and this is one reason why it's really the main reason why you've seen a lot of momentum from China over the last year or two, especially as the trade war has intensified, um, a lot of momentum behind this push to attract foreign institutional investors. So that is one, I think, really important structural change. There's, to get even bigger picture, but quite fascinating, 
the other change here is simply that China's globalizing its financial markets. And this is, um, this is going to be a quite fundamental shift for the global financial system. Let's put it this way. China, over the last 20 years, uh, has become extremely integrated into the global trading system. Its degree of integration with global financial markets has been far smaller, and that's because of capital controls that China has kept in place. Well, now China's opening up. It's looking to internationalize its currency, and suddenly China's outward flows, but also inward flows to China portfolio, um, portfolio investment is going to be far more significant. And this is going to have significant impacts on China's clout within the international financial system, the degree to which events in China impact all of us through our investments in, in, in the US. Um, it's quite a fundamental shift. And there are opportunities here, but there are also some risks. I mean, one of the issues that I'm very focused on is the fact that with Chinese equities now a bigger portion of the MSCI index, and with Chinese bonds becoming added to the equivalent benchmarks for fixed income, you have a whole class of investors, foreign investors, European, US, um, other, other developed markets, who follow benchmarks and are going to be passively more or less following the benchmarks to China. And so the, are these asset managers are going to be owning Chinese stocks and Chinese bonds for the first time, and probably will not have done much homework on the unique features of China's political system and how it impacts financial markets. Is this where the Eurasia Group plug comes in? That's right, and um, that's why they need Eurasia Group. But uh, you know, more broadly, what it means is that there will be political events in China or economic events. It's important to remember China is not a system that's very well equipped or designed for communicating to the outside world. And this is going to have significant volatility. Investors will not know what to make of these policy decisions or events. And whereas before this kind of event would have mostly been felt in Chinese financial markets, the reverberations are going to be felt for all of us. And I lived through one of these events in August 2015 when China made what it thought was a minor technical move, technical shift to its exchange rate. It did not communicate it very well. The rest of the world thought that China was about to devalue its currency, and this set in motion two years of major capital outflows from China and real concerns of a potential financial crisis. So this is, this is something that is likely to be um, repeated in some form or another, but with an even more direct channel for the rest of us. I remember when that happened, I was on a camping trip with my kids and I didn't have access to email for two days and I came back to like 1,700 emails about this. Um, that whole topic to me is, is completely fascinating. I mean, if you make the comparison that the kind of emergence or convergence of, of, of China into, into global capital markets uh, will be something of the magnitude of its kind of you know emergence into the global trading system, uh, you're talking about massive implications. I mean, China remade the global trading system with its WTO ascension um, and its growth as a commercial power. If you have even you know same order of magnitude, you know effect on the on the integration into global capital markets, we're talking about really big impact in terms of 
just a massive shift in, in the global balance sheet. So my question, my follow-up question on that, it's a little unfair because it's sort of impossible to answer. There is one school of thought that looks at that and says, okay, that actually is a big um, impetus for China to reform because it has to now adhere in a consistent way to the global norms, rules, and regulations, and standards around cross-border capital flows. That's one view. The second view, and, and one that I tend to, uh, you know, to believe in, is that that gives China a tremendous amount of clout to reshape those global standards, rules, regulations, particularly at a moment when the U.S. is kind of pulling back a little from multilateral approaches to thinking about these sorts of issues through the IMF or, or different fora that exist for this sort of thing, the G20, the G7, um, and where the U.S.-EU relationship has become a little bit more fraught. And that typically, that transatlantic relationship had kind of set these sorts of, of standards. So with the acknowledgement that it's a totally unfair question, how do you, you know, just sort of thoughts on that and how do you see that playing out? I think that's right. It's going to be one of these issues that the global system has already been dealing with, um, but continues to deal with in different contexts of how much does China change the world versus the world change China. I think for the short term, at least, or really for the foreseeable future, um, this is going to be a period of convergence in both directions, meaning China is opening partly because they want the um, the, the, the standards um, of foreign institutional investors, um, they want that in their domestic markets. They don't just want the money, they want a more professional uh, in investor base because Chinese equity markets are dominated by mom and pop investors and this has led to a very volatile uh, stock market. Um, over time, though, I think you're right. Um, China is so large as an economy, uh, and its equity markets are already so large, that even with very significant inflows, uh, foreign investors are probably going to be a fairly small share of the equity market, which means that they will, as a whole, probably have less clout um, than would be the case in, say, uh, a Mexico or another emerging market where, where foreigners have a much larger role, which means that uh, Chinese regulators, Chinese officials will probably be more focused on domestic investors and rather than foreign investors, and that domestic standards um, will be uh, more entrenched than in a smaller economy. I think that we probably do need to be prepared for global financial flows happening more and more according to a level of comfort or standards that, uh, that China's familiar with. And you can just look at what's happening right now with the IPO market. Right now, there's very intense competition for where Chinese tech companies list. Uh, some of it's domestic within China, some of it's Hong Kong, some of it's, it's New York and London. And this race to attract Chinese tech companies is maybe not fair to say a race to the bottom, but Hong Kong, for example, has waived some of the restrictions that it has on corporate governance issues in order to attract Chinese, Chinese listings, allowing, for example, some of these tech companies to be dominated by the founders and where minority shareholders have fewer rights. 
So this kind of issue is going to be, I think, an increasing source of, of tension. We're also in a very strange time period right now where China's financial globalization is accelerating. At the time that its trade relationships with the U.S. in particular are in some ways fragmenting. And I don't know that it's a great thing that these two things are happening at the same time. It's a bit strange for technology tensions to be rising between the U.S. and China just at the same time that financial ties are deepening. It has a real potential for creating some dislocations, um, and there's a, there's a risk that uh, some of this could bleed into financial market movements. So you've opened up about 50 things that I want to pursue, but we've already been uh, at it for a while, and as we mentioned earlier, it is Friday afternoon, so uh, we're going to end it there. But Michael, thanks so much for, for coming back. We will have you back on when the uh, implementation risks blow up on U.S.-China. Thanks. Looking forward to that, sort of. 